Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 50, DNA Sequencing. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, NASA scientists, engineers, and astronauts, all to let you know the coolest information about what's going on right here at NASA. So today we're talking about DNA sequencing on board the International Space Station with Dr. Sarah Wallace. First, a little background. DNA stands for deoxyribonucleic acid. This basically serves as a blueprint for any organism. DNA provides detailed instructions on how to make a living thing what it is, whether it's a banana tree, bunny rabbit, or human being. DNA sequencing is when you take a small sample of a living thing, such as a mold from the kitchen sink or cheek cells from your mouth, and extract the DNA from the cells. Then you determine the order of the nucleotide bases. This is the order then that's matched with the patterns of known organisms. 30 years ago, first-generation DNA sequencing machines could easily take up an entire laboratory's worth of space. Now we're using a sequencer on the International Space Station that can literally fit inside of a pocket. So today we're talking with Dr. Sarah Wallace, who was instrumental in developing this sequencer as part of a multi-center effort led right here at the Johnson Space Center. I'm particularly excited about this interview because DNA sequencing can be used for all sorts of beneficial things in space, from monitoring the crew member's health to identifying microbes and even potentially detecting life in the solar system. So with no further delay, let's go light speed and jump right ahead to our talk with Dr. Sarah Wallace. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Very excited for this topic because DNA sequencing, this is relatively new for spaceflight in particular, but it's it sounds super cool. But if you kind of know what it is, and that's the thing is whenever I was like, cool, yeah, DNA sequencing in space, what is that? So if, if we can just start there, what's DNA sequencing? Sure. So DNA sequencing, like you mentioned, not new to labs here on Earth. Yeah. Definitely brand new to space. Um, traditionally, you know, we've been doing DNA sequencing on the ground for a couple, couple decades now through different different methods of doing it. Um, but it's definitely evolved to the point where the instrumentation could be small and portable enough that we could do it in space. The old, most of the sequencers, the other two that I have in my lab, um, they're very large, they're um, sensitive to vibrations, they require a large power draw. As you know, those are not things that are awesome for spaceflight. Um, <laughs> make things a little difficult. Um, so when this new technology came out that would really let us achieve the same thing, which is obtaining that sequence of DNA in a smaller platform, that's what's really allowed us to do it in space. Um, so really, DNA sequencing is just that, just determining that order of those, those four bases, the A, the G, the T, and the C, that if you sometimes see all those kind of just looks like a bunch of letters and looks like does, <laughs> doesn't mean anything but that's that sequence that makes up every living thing and so this instrument is letting us determine that sequence so i'd hate to back up even further than that but you're talking to a marketing major here so if we're to back up to dna and mm -hmm. these four letters mm -hmm. what what is that so they're they're made of um these are the nucleotide bases, um, so that it's really a, a sugar phosphate backbone that you have these, um, the bases on. So, you just want me to say deoxyribonucleic acid? Yeah. Okay. Like I didn't know. <laughs> like, am I am I going too simple? Okay. Um, so deoxyribonucleic acid, um, and so this is really again like it makes up every living thing, and so it's you know one of the basic building blocks um, or the basic thing that makes up these pr blueprints that we know that all life forms on earth have this very similar um, incredibly similar structure that if we can determine the sequence that can tell us something either tell us all about that living thing even if it's something small like a microorganism even tell us who that living thing is so it's really just a abundance of information that we can get on something so 
basically the order of these four things spread out over how many characters? Millions? Or is it, yep. is it millions? Yeah. Depending on if we're talking about for a human or for a plant or for bacteria, they're going to have different sized genomes. So this mm. makes up your genome. Um, and so what those, those four letters do is that they code for genes. So a sequence of these four letters make up a gene. And it's those genes and the way that they get turned on and off that tells our bodies how to respond to certain environments. And then it's telling our cells when to grow and when, you know, all these different things. So by looking at the DNA, we have the genes. And then we need to take it a step further to look at the RNA, which is DNA is transcribed into RNA. Um, and so by looking at the RNA, which is what our next experiment is going to do, um, it, that gets back to the telling us which genes are on and off. So the DNA in theory, it should always be the same unless it's changed by something like a mutation. Um, now your gene expression, that's something that's changing all the time. And we do that by measuring the RNA. Interesting. This is a complicated world. It is. I'm sorry. I'm not doing a good job. <laughs> no, you're doing great. It's me who didn't study enough well, in school. Well, and I'm jumping ahead and I'm all over the place. Um. Um, but if I, if I were to just sort of take it down to my brain capacity, mm -hmm. this a, a gene, mm -hmm. for example, is, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, the color of your hair. So a gene is going to say you have brown hair. Yeah. And then this sequence is going to say this person is going to have brown hair based on this gene. Right. Okay. Yeah. But it doesn't, it's not like it's going to identify this long string of letters and just like, this is Dr. Sarah Wallace. We're getting there. Really? Yeah, we're getting there. So with um, a microorganism, that's exactly what it's going to do. It's going to tell me who huh. that microorganism is. Um, and for me as a microbiologist, that's that's what I want to know. That's I want to know, yep, I want to know who that is that could potentially make the crew sick or, or be a problem to the ISS environment. Um, a lot of, there's a lot of companies, I'm sure you've seen the commercials on TV, um, for send us your DNA sample and we'll tell you all about you. Um, oh, yeah. They're getting into the, it's getting pretty specific to where um, if you, you know, you can find out a lot about somebody's background, their heritage, um, maybe what certain, you know, diseases they might be more likely to have the way. So it's, it's, we're kind of right at that point, I think. And again, I'm a microbiologist, not, don't, not human, um, <laughs> but don't study human genomes, but we're kind of right at the, the cusp of where that's really starting to take off to where you could start looking at things like personalized medicine based on your genome. And that's really where a lot of research is headed. Is it fair to say that that's huge? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that's a big one, right? Yeah, and it, you know, especially for for NASA, these are you know we have a, a you know our crew is you know they're a healthy population, so mm -hmm. you know we're not looking necessarily if they have these diseases, but if there were a way where we could understand if a crew was more would metabolize a certain nutrient better, or there was a way we could alter that based on their genome that may be a countermeasure for being able to, you know, if, if certain nutrients are limited or, you know, the body isn't absorbing them, that you could really handle that at the level of the genome. So um, you can basically identify where the gaps are and you say, you need this extra nutrient. Okay. Add this, add this to the diet or yeah, basically. Or, or if they're taking it in, but they're just not metabolizing it. Ah. Um, and so they're, they're getting plenty of it, but it's being excreted in their urine because their body isn't metabolizing it as well um, as somebody else's. So maybe there's other things that you can do to help them increase their metabolism of that nutrient. Um, yeah. So the research is already kind of headed in that direction. Like uh, maybe some sort of pharmaceutical that can help them to Same digest thing. or something Same like thing. that. Same yep. Okay. Yep. And, and maybe someone is more prone to being susceptible to a certain type of, of pharmaceutical where somebody else wouldn't be. And those are things hmm. that we're starting to really look at the level of the genome to provide insight towards. Wow. Okay. So, so I guess there's a lot of things to look forward to in the future, but in terms of DNA sequencing... I guess right now mm -hmm. on the station, we'll start with what's what are we doing now? What are we learning now on the station with sequencing? So our very first experiment, um, the biomolecule sequencer, yeah. um, Dr. Aaron Burton was the principal investigator of that experiment. That was really to take this new piece of technology, this very small sequencer that again, the output of what it gives you is the same as these big ones. It just does it in a very different way. Mm -hmm. But does this even work in microgravity? Before we start developing a lot of ways to 
prepare the sample, does this thing even work? So that was the first experiment, and that's the one that, you know, Kate Rubin's, I think that picture's been seen a lot of her, <laughs> her holding it with her success, the first DNA sequencing. And that's really what it was. We prepared the DNA on the ground here on Earth, um, and then we launched the DNA, we launched the sequencer, and everything worked beautifully, mm-hmm. much better than we could have expected. Um, and so then the follow-on the, um, that we were already working on at the same time um, we had gotten funding to develop was that sample prep process because the sequencer is no good if you don't have a way to prep your sample. And every sequencer, this very tiny one to the larger ones, you have to put the DNA in a state that the sequencer can recognize it or read it. Um, so that sample preparation part is key no matter what DNA sequencer you're using. So that was really where the where, you know some of the gotchas would be is how do we how do I basically put my entire molecular biology lab on ISS? <laughs> and so what we were really doing was finding ways, you know, using what was already out there and, and technology that was already up there and just how can we tweak procedures to make this as, as easy for the crew to do as possible but get us meaningful science. Um, Did size have a lot to do with it? You were constrained on how much you can bring up and how much you can have, you know. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Size and power. And, you know, something that we use a lot of on the ground is a centrifuge. And while there are centrifuges up there, they're not they're not exactly the same ones we would use for this type of, of you know, to do the molecular biology where you just quickly pop in a little tube in and out. Mm-hmm. They're very specialized. So they weren't available to us. So um, it was actually a piece of equipment that was already up there that was called mini-PCR. And that PCR stands for the polymerase chain reaction. And that process is just amplifying DNA. So you can think of it kind of like a photo photocopier for DNA. So if you have a very little amount, you can turn it into a lot. Um, and that's, that's a common first step in any, any molecular biology process, but especially DNA sequencing. That's usually a first step thing you're going to do. Um, so that was already on board. It was actually um, the Genes in Space program, which is a high school student, get high school students to get involved in, and they oh. can propose an experiment. So the first molecular biology experiment ever done in space was a high school student, which I think is just cool. <laughs> I just think, you know, way to go. Um, yeah. And so we were able to partner with them, um, our biomolecule sequencer and, and mini-PCR, and we became Genes in Space 3. And so what that was, Genes in Space 3, was really to show that we could go all the way from a sample to an answer. And what we chose as our sample for that was actually microorganisms that had been collected from and cultured on ISS as part of my, my lab's normal job is to monitor the ISS air, water, and surface for what's growing up there. Hmm. So we already have this stuff growing up there, um, but it wasn't a part of our process. So we were able to pull in some of those bacteria and actually have the astronaut sequence them on board, which is the first time we've ever identified anything off planet Earth. So super exciting. So the sample was the stuff that's growing. What's What's growing? What's growing up there? Well, it's not all necessarily growing, but some of it is. Um, <laughs> there's there's everything. So ISS has a microbiome just like we do. Hmm. Um, so every you know we don't send up a sterile vehicle, we don't send up sterile crew, we don't send up sterile anything. Um, you know, cargo, hardware, food, everything has has microorganisms that it's taking up there. It's as sterile as we can make it, but well, and and we we do our best to to reduce potential pathogens from getting up there hmm. but as as i think we're starting to learn there's there's a healthy balance there's very beneficial microbes and we're still starting still working on understanding how um, those in the environment interplay with us as humans in our daily life that research is really just just starting to get underway yeah um but what we want to do is make sure that some of those potential pathogens that we carry with us aren't they're in high abundance to where a crew could come in contact with them or they would get into the water system and something could foul up the water system and cause problems for the vehicle that would be problematic for everybody. Yeah. Um, so that's that's part of our normal. We've been doing that since the beginning of station. Right. Um, and the astronauts actually are physically culturing the bacteria and the fungi that are up there. Is this a normal part of living in a contained environment, I guess? No matter what kind of contained environment, there's going to be this microbiome, these, these fungi, bacteria that are just going to... But you have to learn to coexist with them in this, in this tight space. Right. And that's really what it is. Yeah, and, our, and really just reducing the risk. If we find oh, okay. something that... There are definitely things we carry as people that, you know, they're fine when they're honest, but we don't want them out in the environment in high numbers where the crew has a scrape or something, they accidentally bump up against it, they get it in there. So, you know, there's... We just want to 
have the environment be as free of those types of things as possible. Sure. And also the things, like I said, that could foul up one of the environmental life support systems because something's growing in them, which is something we have to keep a close eye on. Um, so that's really the, the why we do this monitoring in the first place is just to see making sure the environment is as is leading to the least amount of risk possible. So what's the normal monitoring that you do? And then what was this? Um, you said there was a sample and then answer yes. section of the DNA. Yep. So what are those two components? So the normal monitoring is this basic have the astronaut collect from the air, the water, the surface, a sample and actually grow the bacteria and the fungi. That's what we do all the time. Cool. Then we get about an idea of about how many is there, but we have no idea what it is. And as a microbiologist, I would argue that oftentimes with some of these environmental bugs, sometimes what it is can be more important than how many there are. When you drink water, you're drinking bacteria and could be in, in relatively high number that don't hurt you. But if just a few of the wrong type are in there, you're in for a rough night. And anybody mm-hmm. that's ever had food poisoning or anything kind of oh, knows, man. yeah, yes. we don't want the crew to experience <laughs> that. <laughs> um, so it's really important to know what it is, not just how many there are. So we up until very recently, we have never been able to have that answer in space. We have to wait till those samples come back to the lab on the ground here and for our microbiologists to be able to process them and, and, and provide an answer. And we do that through DNA sequencing. Mm-hmm. So now with Genes in Space 3, we were able to take one of those samples that we would normally return and we were able to actually have the astronaut take some of the cells that had been grown and put them through our mini PCR process into the minion, which is the DNA sequencer, and actually we were able to get the data down of what was growing on those petri dishes before we even got the petri dish back. Um, so that was, again, that's really something we need to be able to enable, you know, human exploration um, beyond, beyond ISS. So it was, for me, that was one of the most exciting moments I've ever had in my career was seeing, you know, sitting there watching the data come down and watching us analyze it and, and see the IDs pop up mm-hmm. um, just because it's not a capability we've ever had. Yeah. So, so you're basically you're basically scrubbing the station and putting it into here. Hey, is this is this going to hurt me? And then you put it through the DNA sequencer and you can find out pretty quickly. No, I'm good. Yep. And that's really the benefit, rather than waiting for exactly. a return mission exactly. back. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Because imagine if you're you're not on ISS and you have a limited supply of antibiotics. Yeah. If you have a wound infection, do you treat it with the antibiotic because maybe it's something we need to worry about, or is it? you know, isn't an acne causing bacteria, let, don't waste the antibiotic, let's save it because we can't resupply. And same thing with the disinfectant wipe. If something's growing up on station, which we've seen it, um, do we need to waste all of our disinfectant wipes to go clean that up? Or is it something that we don't need to worry about until later down the road? So it's really those types of questions that we get into that I think the sequencer is going to be hugely powerful in helping us address. Yeah, just basically, okay, yeah, I can coexist with this for a while. It's not going to hurt me. But then also identifying, okay, this if, if I have this particular type of bacteria – now you're talking about efficiency of pharmaceuticals. Mm-hmm. You're talking about you, you don't waste mm-hmm. don't waste this one because mm-hmm. it's not going to work because the exactly. DNA sequencer identified it as this. Yes. Therefore, you need to use this pharmaceutical. Different. Yep. Wow, that's significant. Yeah, and it's it's just a you know, and this is again, this is all very micro specific because that's what I do. But those yeah. things we talked about early on, that's really the research is starting to be there on on the human health front. You know how are how are humans responding to things and, and you know, measuring changes in, in the crew members, gene expression and things like that, that really, you know, I think so much beyond just microbes. But for now, the micro part for me is just huge <laughs> and exciting. You're right. There's those steps, right? Yeah. We got, let's deal with the micro now, but mm-hmm. then eventually we'll be able to identify, ah, that's Dr. Sarah Wallace. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there. You know, we, we, we sort of addressed it in the beginning, but I don't think I circled back to it. One of the one of the main things for the uh, min-ion is what mm-hmm. you called it, right? Mm-hmm. Whenever te- you were first testing it on board the station mm-hmm. was to see, does this thing work in microgravity? Correct. So what were the concerns that it wouldn't? Well, everything, the way that the sequencer works, um, your DNA is in a fluid. It's in a buffer. Um, and there's some, some salts, some other things that there's, that when you turn on the sequencer, basically these things start to flow through these, these proteins. These are actual proteins. We call them nanopores. So it's a nanopore sequencer. So they're the same type of proteins that your cells have and my cells have that let ions in and out of our cells. It's those same proteins in a membrane. And as the DNA, well, let me back up, as those salts that are in the buffer flow through there, um, a current is created. 
as the DNA molecule passes through, it changes that current. It's the change in current that the software then takes and changes it into the AGTC sequence that we are looking for. Hmm. So with that, the fluid and, and the buffers, all of that, anytime there's fluidics involved, you never quite know in microgravity. <laughs> yes. um, we On the ground, we have issues where if accidentally when you're loading your sample, a bubble is introduced, that bubble is very problematic. Was that going to be the same in space? So it was some very pretty simple fundamental questions in terms of just the operation of such a small device and, you know, the crew working on on a small scale, but then back to kind of the fluidics, issues with bubbles, things that we just really didn't know until we got it up there. Yeah. One of the things I always go back to with fluids is, I mean, if you just see any video of water in space, it's one of the coolest things to watch because you think... The the primary force on Earth that controls water is gravity. That's what helps it stick to a cup. But at the same time, you're going to get little sweat beads, and that's the surface tension. Surface tension dominates in microgravity. And I could see that really, really messing with the... But, I mean, so you said you didn't have any problems. How much of it was because you had Kate Rubens, who's an expert in this sort of thing, dealing with it, versus the capability of the machine? If you said everything's working perfectly, I'm thinking it's the latter. I think I, I think it's the latter as well. Yeah. I think that right now we've been so fortunate. We've had Kate Rubens and then Peggy Whitson. Yeah. So couldn't yeah, couldn't couldn't ask for, for better hands in terms of come from a lab. I mean that's what these yeah. these are these are scientists. They're who, scientists. Who, that's what they do. Right. So for them it it wasn't a foreign thing. Um, we have again, microgravity isn't a play here, but we have had um, multiple astronauts test this for the last two NEMO expeditions, which is the um, NEMO is a um, since NASA Extreme Environment Mission Operations. So it's uh, Florida International University owns this habitat that sits on the ocean floor mm-hmm. um, off the coast of Key Largo. Aquarius. And there we go. Yeah. Thank you. And every uh, <laughs> NASA writes an out um, for a couple weeks during the summer to send some of their astronauts down there to train. So the last two summers we've had a lot of different astronauts get their hands on it from this. So we've actually had far more than just Kate and Peggy run the sequencer um, in an extreme environment. We just haven't. We're working on writing up those papers, and they just haven't gotten talked as much about. But I think that speaks to the um, just the, the device itself and how well it was designed, that it really is – we're doing something very, very complex, mm-hmm. but the system is is pretty simple to use. And then I like to think that the process that we've developed to do the sample prep is also pretty simple. Of course, there's we're trying to make it better and even more simple and more automated, um, but it's working, and I we're really excited to to see where it all goes. So what were they identifying in Aquarius? Were they scrubbing, like, the ocean floor or something? So here's the kicker with this. <laughs> so we were still focused on the inside of the habitat. Yeah. But we were what we were doing was we were having the crew swab a surface. That swab was going directly into the process. So we were removing the need to first culture the microorganisms. So how great would that be if we didn't, if we have potential pathogens, if the crew never has to turn them from, you know, couple hundred maybe on the surface to millions and we could remove that step completely and so what we do right now is a culture dependent process what I hope to see in the future is a culture independent process that's what we've been working on getting ready at Nemo for our next spaceflight investigation so I might be missing a step. Is this is this that PCR th- um, part component where you're making a lot of copies? Kind and, of. Okay. So okay. P- we'll still need PCR, but okay. PCR you can think of PCR as copying the DNA. I that see. culture you can think of the actual. They're growing. They're living. They're growing. Those cells are dividing. Hmm. So you're amplifying the material, but those cells are living. You, you get the big fuzzy spots from the fungus and the big colonies from the bacteria. So removing that part. So you would still amplify the DNA, but you would never have to increase the number of organisms that you had originally in your sample, which culture, that's what you're doing. You're increasing the number of living organisms. Okay. What's the, is there a fancy culturing process in order to make sure that these things, um, is, or is it just, what, what do you do to culture them to make um, sure that they're, they go through this process? That's, it's the same way. It is good old 
microbiology 101, the same uh, way if you ever took a class where you went streaked something out and streaked it across a plate, that's the exact same thing the astronauts doing. are doing. Okay. There's a picture of Petri dish with the food in there, and that's, that's the same thing. So it's the way microbiology has been done since the beginning, the way we've been doing microbiology since Apollo. Wow. It's great. It's, it's the gold standard. It's you know what you have. You know, there, there are some... There are some drawbacks, as there are with anything, um, and I just think moving away and not needing to do that in the future is is would be huge. Yeah, so. it seems like there's a lot of microbiology components to flying in space that maybe you wouldn't normally think about. I think, yeah, I think we're a little underrated. I don't think people <laughs> think enough about us. There are, I mean, and it's. I think a lot of people, you know, take it for granted. We, you know, keeping the crew safe and healthy is is what everybody who works for NASA in some way shape or form is mm. that's what we care about um, but it's, if anybody's ever you know you've had strep throat you've had you know something a cut that's get infected you know you've been plagued by these things um, yeah. infectious disease is, a, is an issue that everybody has been dealt with and and just because we send astronauts up there they may not be exposed to the flu virus or the cold virus as often as we are mm-hmm. um, but they're carrying up those bacteria and things with them that could potentially make them sick that's right and how cool would it be if you can just use this mini PCR and you have a you have a little bit of a cough and then you take a little swab, put it into the mini PCR and you're like, okay, this is this kind of flu or common cold that's, or something and then okay, I need to take these antibiotics or something. That's my goal. So yeah. the two part, you you do that, you just whether it's a swab or, you know, you just something into mini PCR and then into the minion. So we amplify and then we sequence. Amplify, Um, sequence. And then that will give us, and that's, you know, we're doing that right now with just the swab. So I can envision it, you know, as the technology becomes more sensitive and we start to understand this kind of culture-independent data better um, and, and develop proper standards and controls, I can really see it going in that direction. So you talked about Genes in Space 3, mm-hmm. and I know there's been more. So what are, what's the sort of progress that you're taking to, to learn more and more about, about this study? So the biomolecule sequencer was, was the first. That's okay. the, we're going to, that's what we called the Minion, is the actual, is the company name of the sequencer. Mm-hmm. Um, we called it the biomolecule sequencer. It's a commercial off-the-shelf product, right? Exactly. Okay. Oxford Nanopore Technologies, um, and really the only sequencer out there that, I can put in my pocket and fly to ISS. You know, it's it's really that small. Wow. Um, and it's it's smaller than your smartphone. Um, so the other um, and then mini PCR is also extremely small. Um, so the first one was just a biomolecule sequencer. Genes in space at the time um, we were not collaborating with them. That was a high school student's experiment just to show that same thing DNA can be amplified in space. Right. Um, and then we collaborated, and that was Genes in space three. And we're continuing our collaborations. Um, the next investigation is called BEST, the BEST experiment. Um, <laughs> Very humble <laughs> right? title. Yeah. Um, stands for Biomolecule Extraction and Sequencing Technology. Um, really what we're going to do with that is just everything we can. Um, we're going to take <laughs> advantage, um, while we have a little bit left of this extra crew time of this crew member, we're going to take advantage of as much science as we can get done. So that swab process I was talking about. Um, where we just have them swab and stick that swab directly into the process, never culture anything. Mm -hmm. We're going to try that out. Hmm. Um, We are also going to do some evolution-type experiments. We're going to send up some bacteria um, that are common water bacteria that, you know, no one, that are very, they're safe to to handle. Um, Send them up and have them grow and then have the crew do some transfers of them so we get a lot of generations of them reproducing and see if we can start to see by sequencing their entire genome, see if we can start to see any changes due to mutation. Um, and so this is something that, you know, a lot of people have been have been working on trying to define a mutation rate. It's hard if you don't have a proper ground control where you're tracking the same thing. And so people ask me all the time as a microbiologist, well, do things mutate? I, I don't know because the Staph aureus that we isolated from the space station, I don't have that exact Staph aureus before it launched. Mm. So I can't say if it mutated. But this we will have, we'll be able to start to get some insight into maybe how susceptible at least this organism is to radiation and if, if we can see any changes um, at the level of the genome. Um, so then the next experiment, and, and I'm equally excited about all of them, but I'm very much excited about <laughs> this tell. one. Um, <laughs> um, 
we will be sequencing RNA directly. Um, this is a big deal because this is really the only platform out there that you can do direct RNA sequencing. Um, most of the time you're converting RNA back into cDNA to be able to sequence it when you're doing these types of experiments. Um, but with the, with the nanopore sequencer, we can sequence RNA directly, meaning we don't have to do a lot of things to change it. So I'll tell you why this is important. You yourself have your DNA in you right now that is, it says who you are and it, it makes you up, but it doesn't tell me anything about what you are experiencing right now. Um, if I'm just looking um, at the DNA, actually there are ways that it, it could tell me some things, but we'll, we'll keep it simple. <laughs> um, so, the, so, but if I want to know things about how you're responding to your environment, I want to know what genes are being turned on and turned off. Because let's just say you have 100 genes. You have much more than that. But let's say you have 100. You don't need all 100 all the time, so your body's not going to waste energy expressing all 100 all the time. Hmm. So maybe right now sitting here talking to me, you're just trying to keep your eyes open, so you're only using those 20 to do that. I'm trying to pretend I'm <laughs> smart. That's what I'm doing right now. Um, doing a great <laughs> job. Um, so if I wanted to know what this, that, this environment of me talking to you was doing, I would want to know which genes are turned on and turned off. Okay. In space, that is kind of the goal, is, is how our organisms, how are living things responding to space, and how we do that is looking at what genes are on and what genes are off. So to turn a gene on and off, you, you, trans, you transcribe it into RNA. So that DNA makes RNA, which eventually goes on to make a protein, which will do something. But it's that RNA that's, that's telling that we can look at and see what kind of environment you're in. So we know that gene expression changes. Every time we've done a space flight experiment where we look at a living thing, we see their gene expression changing. It's just it does because you're in mm -hmm. a, you, you need certain things in space. Certain genes need to be on and off that aren't the same as they would be on Earth, whether it's due to radiation or microgravity or you're changing your diet, all of these things. We're really now just trying to understand all this and pick it apart. So if I have a capability to where I can sequence RNA directly without having to turn it back into cDNA, which we do for most of the sequencers on Earth, and I can do it right there, I can gain a lot of insight into how these things are responding and when. And it's really important because they change over, over time. And so to be able to track that and do it would give us just a huge amount of insight that we haven't had. So with this experiment, that's what we're going to do, is we're going to sequence RNA directly and actually have the crew. Um, RNA is a little less stable than DNA. It's a little mm -hmm. more difficult to work with. So have the crew go through all the steps of preparing it and sequencing it. So I'm trying to think of an, of an example to sort of wrap my brain around this. So if, if, you, were, if you were to swab, I guess, one, some of the microbiome in, in the mm -hmm. station, right, and they were to say the DNA would tell you this is the kind of microbiome it mm -hmm. is, what, what would it say... What would the RNA tell go. you about how it's reacting? What do you expect? That's, that's what it was. So yeah. the DNA would tell me who is there. Yes. The RNA would tell me what genes were being turned on and turned off. So it would tell me what that system, as, as the whole, what they are doing. So hmm. are they metabolizing the surface that they're on? Are they oh, being able to, are they producing, are they giving off some kind of, you know, different, different compound or is it just a simple are they just rest are they just respiring so it would tell us the function more what they're doing it gets more towards that functionality mm -hmm. um, and so with our cells it tells us again are you able are you building up muscle are you tearing down muscle are you oh. those types of things that wow. yeah to really get at what's going on in the whole system. Aaron is my analogy guy. I should have asked him for a good analogy because he's <laughs> That's a great analogy. He's good, but that's that's it's really it's it's what the DNA tells you what capabilities are there. Mm -hmm. The RNA tells you what's actually happening. So it's like okay, so I'm going to scale it up a bit to to humans. Um and, and tell me if I'm wrong okay. again. So the DNA would tell you this is, let's just say Gary's flying in space. This okay. is Gary. He has brown hair and, you know, uh, brown eyes, and he's this tall. That's what the DNA mm -hmm. tells you. The RNA is going to tell you he is losing muscle in this area. His eyes are changing this way, and he's kind of nervous and scared about doing this podcast. Yes. Yes, that's what yes. it would tell there you. There we okay, go. Yes. Good. Yes. And, uh, all, all those little things about all the different systems and how they're how they're functioning together and separately and you know and and just how that everything you said. 
Okay. All right. Um, very interesting stuff, and especially there's a lot of applications that can go forward. I did want to circle back uh, to just microbiology and mm-hmm. you. How did you sort of get into this world that turned from microbiology to space microbiology? So it all started space for me. Um, I'm <laughs> one of first. I'm okay. one of those. Yep. So yeah. um, I am very fortunate to have grown up in a, a small town in Kansas. That small town in Kansas was located within about an hour drive to another small town in Kansas, Hutchison, Kansas, which is home to the Kansas Cosmosphere and Space Center. Mm-hmm. Um, I tell everybody, if you're a space nerd, you have to go there. It's the <laughs> largest collection of spaceflight memorabilia anywhere in the world, both U.S. and, and Soviet at the time, Russian now. Um, just phenomenal um, collection. Apollo 13 is there. Um, I think the Liberty Bell's traveling around, but it was there. It's where we're sending pieces of mission control to get restored. <laughs> um, so it really I, it really is. like this is, this is where you go to nerd out. Yeah, that'll um, get you into space. And they had a space camp, so I know it's not the space camp in Huntsville, but um, I went to that space camp. And, and so just really my sixth grade science teacher, um, Jim Lester, just really, he, he inspired the love of space in me. Um, and not only did we take tests over, you know, the solar system, like all sixth graders do, but we took tests over NASA history and, and I just loved it. Um, so when I, it was really when I got to undergrad, I knew I was always a biology girl. I was never that strong in, in math and, and engineering. So thank goodness that I I didn't need to do a whole lot of it. Um, (laughs) Had to do well in those classes and to do well to get into graduate school. Um, But my strength was always in more in the life sciences and in in biology and in chemistry. Um, And so when I got into undergrad, I really, I didn't know, but there was a professor there that had some um, NASA's funding doing kind of astrobiology type work. And he was like, come work in my lab for a little while. And that's where I streaked my first plate as a microbiologist. And that was it. I was hooked from that day. And so it was like, how do I combine my love of microbiology with my love of NASA? Um, And I found the University of Texas Medical Branch down in Galveston, which has a phenomenal PhD program in microbiology in case the whole space thing didn't work out. I would have a microbiology, you know, degree from a good, uh, a world-renowned program. Um, so I was fortunate enough to, and then have that proximity. Um, so was able to get a fellowship to do my research, my PhD research here at NASA, um, and then just never left. <laughs> yeah. You know, I hear that narrative a lot where you, where you go for something knowing that if you were to just stay there, you'd be happy anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I see that all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think it's such a good piece of advice because if your ultimate goal is astronaut, which it is for a lot of it people, it is for a lot of people, you know, you got to take steps that if you were to not get to eventually astronaut you would be happy for the rest of your life and whatever i love that yeah i think it's a a good piece of advice great plan b yeah um and also you know i stem is so so important but i always tell tell kids you don't have to be good in all of them (laughs) (laughs) find the one you're passionate about um and and if you struggle as you get into some of the harder math classes that's okay yeah or if you struggle and you know you don't care about the biology but you really like the chemistry whatever it is um you know i just i think that's that's good too just hang in there until you swab a plate exactly and once (laughs) it's magic once that happens (laughs) i love it i love it you know talking about your passion for space and sort of going down this path to eventually do microbiology for nasa There's one story that just is, is stuck in my head, okay. and that's last year when Hurricane Harvey happened, and gosh darn, we still needed to sequence that DNA in yep. space. You were calling Peggy Whitson from your house because yes. we were all trapped because of the storm. Yes. How was that experience? Um, that, I was going to say, getting the data was probably the highlight of my life. That actually was probably the <laughs> highlight of my life. So the way we did Genes in Space 3, we did it in two separate portions mm-hmm. um, so that it would be just easier to schedule and, and, and that kind of thing. So the first part was to have Peggy collect some of those cells that were growing mm-hmm. and put them in mini PCR and then it can stop. And, and after that point, whenever there was time again to come back and collect that, there was a little more prep she had to do to sequence it. So come back, get the, the DNA that had been amplified and then finish prepping it for sequence and actually sequencing. So we had done the first part um, a week or two before Harvey hit. Everything went well, but of course I'm just waiting, like knowing it's so close. Uh, let's get these IDs. Um, <laughs> so it gets put on the timeline for that Monday morning and, um, Harvey hits and it became very apparent that the it 
the center, it wasn't like you can come in. It was like you're not coming in. The center was closed. and The and gates were underwater. Yes. You literally like, physically couldn't. Could not, I could not leave my house. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was just, it was it was awful for wow. anyone that lives here understands. Yeah. Um, so, but me, you know, I yes, I'm worried about the house and the cars and all those things. My family, I should have said that first. <laughs> but, it, you know, for me, it was like we have this scheduled, you know, crews up there they they're still doing their stuff we we need to support so i'm usually enabled to talk them through just the procedures just in case they have any questions or anything so i usually communicate with them i had taken my everything home to be able to connect to the voice loops that allow us to communicate with the crew but of course my um the firewall was blocking my connection from my internet from home Uh. so that's when the people at marshall space flight center um the poic folks were like that's it we'll patch you through to peggy and peggy she didn't know she just thought i was talking to her like normal but i'm in my house um in my sweatshirt (laughs) and it's raining and cold and on my cell phone talk and i usually have video i can usually see what the astronauts are doing this time i did not i was blind so i i was really i had my procedure book I knew where she was in the process. I knew what she was doing. So I was able to, to walk her through it. Went off without a hitch. Like, thank goodness there were no weird things that had to be troubleshooted. Everything went perfectly. Um, and as the sequencer, what's really cool about the sequencer is as it's sequencing, you're getting the data in near real time. So I don't know if things are successful. I know what Peggy's told me. Mm-hmm. But the folks at Marshall were, were able to get a camera view on the Surface Pro 3 that we had running the sequencer. Mm-hmm. And they were able to get a screenshot of me that confirmed to me that it was successful. Oh. So we knew pretty soon after Peggy had, had hit go on the sequencer that it was that it was at least sequencing something um, that was the size of the gene we were, we were looking to sequence. And so um, that was just – that was – one of the most exciting moments and when I got that text from Marshall with that picture I've sent it to the you know my whole team and (laughs) it was just a super super exciting moment Um, and it really was it was like this you know not only this experiment but just science in general was not stopped because of Hurricane Harvey and I just think that that's being here in in Houston and I just I think that's such a cool story and um, for me personally just because it was a huge a huge first in space you know if you think about what we were doing we took bacteria that had been collected from and cultured entirely in space and then we sequenced them and got the ad entirely in space so we did all of this that normally takes a whole lab off of the planet and i mean it was just it was a big huge first and we're really excited and you still got the data in your living room on a cell phone yep (laughs) and like you said doing it blind doing it just reading the procedures not getting a video feed that's a testament to the technology but then also just the communications from michigan troll it's it's a that's a huge accomplishment really thanks and and the people at marshall like they were um they knew that you know they always are running the payloads but they knew that time especially that there just wasn't anything we could do from here so they were awesome yeah no really i just i absolutely love that story it's really really cool Uh, i wanted to kind of end with sort of looking ahead you know we're talking Mm -hmm. about a lot of stuff going on the station and we've we've definitely hinted in the beginning of the evolution of Mm -hmm. what's possible with Mm -hmm. dna and rna sequencing um there's just there's so much ahead what are some of the implications whenever we are starting to go beyond low Earth orbit mm-hmm. and starting to travel now deeper into space? Mm-hmm. Now you're talking about transiting to Mars on you know several months, several year long missions. You're talking about going to the moon and 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 uh, even beyond. You know, mm-hmm. th- thinking really way ahead. Mm-hmm. But what, how how is DNA sequencing and RNA sequencing really going to help you along the way? So I think for me personally, it's going to be, it's, it's all about the microbes. <laughs> it's being able to know if a crew member has, has an infectious disease that we can diagnose it. If their vehicle has something, we can diagnose it. And then we can provide the proper course of remediation, um, which is we're far away from Earth. That's going to be really critical that we get that data. Um, for, for my friends that work on more the side of the humans and not just the microbes, I really think what we're going to start seeing is the use of this technology to monitor the way humans are responding to spaceflight. And, and whatever it is, if it's in terms of a certain, uh, you know, the diet that they're eating or an exercise, you know, regime that they're doing, whatever it is, how are they responding to it? And is it the way we think or should it be altered and tweaked? That's the kind of thing that I'm seeing now being done 
research here on Earth that, you know, hopefully it can start to be applied to NASA. And I know many of my colleagues are, are looking at that um, mm-hmm. to really have that, you know, how is how is astronaut Gary responding? What do we do need to do to make his response better, healthier, stronger, all of those things? Um, and then on the turn of that, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention this. So I mentioned my colleague, um, Dr. Ann Burton, who was the PI of the biomolecule sequencer. Right. So for me, the sequencer is the here and now with the microbes. For him, it really is this future. Is uh, this device um, a first-generation device that is is along the lines of what someday detects life beyond Earth? And why we're so excited about the sequencer is because, as I was describing the way it worked with that change in current, so it's not detecting DNA or RNA per se. It's detecting a biomolecule that's going through its pore. It can be anything that's going through that pore. You just need to know what the signature is and and have your database to be able to to match it up to. So he has colleagues, um, and they're working on things that are, you know, it's not like DNA or RNA as we know it. It's They call it XNAs, and, and it's, it's something that may... Maybe if life weren't like what we expected it to be, this technology could detect it. Um, so it's it's far out there, but you know it's really not that far out there. If maybe this is version one of what that device someday is, yeah. so to be able to to detect life um, beyond Earth and you know have this thing strapped to a rover or in an astronaut's hand on another planet, I think is something that's that's definitely the. Uh, something that folks in the in the astrobiology world are, are really excited about yeah maybe not identify right off the bat but at least start to identify and right. realize what this right. is because so just having something that you knew came from biological origin it wasn't yeah you know it, it came from something living mm-hmm. um and it is truly a biomolecule not just you know oh we found a you know amino acid but it didn't come from something living no this was from something living um, yeah and it has to. Does some of it have to do with? And this this can be a whole tangent of a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> but but you know when, when we're talking about DNA and RNA and and identifying these proteins, these there's a difference between these proteins, which I think I forget which one, but there's a difference between left-handed and right-handed, mm-hmm. and all the ones on yes. Earth are one of the yes. two. I forget if they're left-handed or right-handed. I think left-handed proteins. I'm not gonna jump in there. Okay. Um, yeah. So you're, and, and that is that's I'll. If you want to do another one yeah. on taking that spin, you need Aaron Burton. That's <laughs> yeah. that's what he does. Right. Um, so yeah. Well, but yes. Okay. And and that's you know. Is that that XNA kind of going so, down that path? Kind of. It's just mm. it's not the, you know, it may not be the the AGTC that we're so used to seeing. Um, it might be something totally different. Yeah. Um, and this this technology could detect it. Um, and so there's researchers out there working on on ways to, you know, throw anything you can at it and see what it can detect and, and, and also, you know, making it more robust and durable to survive a trip to Enceladus or Europa or, you know, wherever they're going. So, sure. but, but I leave all that to Aaron, so yeah. <laughs> he that, can give you good answers there. I just think this is a, this is a fascinating topic, not only because of what we're doing right now, but mm-hmm. then what, exactly what we're talking about now, what mm-hmm. we can do in the future. Mm-hmm. For space exploration, but then also kind of bringing it down to Earth. Like yes. that would be huge if you can identify uh, like an, an illness like right off the bat and know exactly how to treat that. There's some significant Earth benefits. Yeah, can you imagine going to your doctor's office and and right away walking away with a confirmed, it's you know, it's this. You need you know, it's it's a staph infection, but not only is it a staph infection, it's resistant to these 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 antibiotics. So we're putting you on this antibiotic knowing that, like just walking away and knowing that, not needing further up tests or, or anything like that. Um, I really think that's kind of what this, the ease and the portability of use of this technology, I really think that's a, a great prime target for them is really. And I think you're going to see, you know, you're going to go to your doctor and they're, well, let's just take a look at your whole genome and let's see if you are, you know, it's, you can pay right now to have it done for fun, you know, the 23andMe. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, yeah. But it's really, I think, might be coming, and then that gets into all kinds of ethical things. But <laughs> Sure. You know, oh, yeah. yeah. If you want to – gene editing, and, and that's that's a whole different – that's one right. of those other tangents we right. can take and do right. a whole other episode. And, and human on. genetic data is, is – which I love sticking with the microbes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There are all kinds of issues when you start talking about human data. So. Well, still, some breakthrough stuff just going on in the world of microbes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And and they're, you know, like we talked about earlier, I, we it's it's an important thing that we do. Um, you know, it's a, if anybody's ever really had a, a bad night in the 
in the restroom because of food poisoning or, or something along those lines mm. and knows how extreme it can be. It's not something we want the crew to experience. Oh, for sure. And that's sure. just one example. <laughs> yeah. Well, Sarah, I really just wanted to thank you for your contribution to the space program, but I'm sure you're not the only one <laughs> making all of these these uh, breakthroughs, are you? Yep. Nope. As I, I've said, um, my colleague, Dr. Aaron Burton, was the, the PI of originally, and he's still... Yeah. Um, it, it's really... There's been a team of four of us all the way through. So Aaron Burton, um, Kristen John, Sarah Stahl, and myself. So really, the the four of us, we've had all, lots of other collaborators, but we've been the four key key people who have done all this. Wow. Just a, it's that small of a team. We're making a small these, team. Yeah. Yep. Well, hey, thank you so much for your contributions, again, to the whole team, but then also to you, Sarah, for coming on the podcast today. Thank you very much. Hey, thanks for sticking around. So today we talked with Dr. Sarah Wallace about sequencing DNA and RNA in space. Uh, this was episode 49 of Houston We Have a Podcast, but they're not really in any particular order. So you can go back and listen to another episode if you want. We talked a little bit about Dr. Aaron Burton, and that was an episode called The Search for Life. You can go back and listen to what we're talking. We almost went on a tangent about uh, the difference between left-handed proteins and right-handed proteins. We get into that a little bit in that episode, The Search for Life. You can go back and listen to that. There are no particular order, so trust me, all of them are good. Uh, and this is from a completely unbiased opinion. Otherwise, you can listen to other NASA podcasts. Uh, we have Gravity Assist up at headquarters, hosted by Dr. Jim Green, if you're really into planetary science. Otherwise, we have our friends over at the Ames Research Center that have the podcast called NASA in Silicon Valley. They talk about the things they're doing over there in California, and they also do some of the research aboard the International Space Station, just like we do here at the Johnson Space Center. And uh, we also talked about during this podcast uh, our friends over at the Marshall Space Flight Center over in Huntsville, Alabama do. Uh, it's sort of a cross-center thing, but uh, you can see some of the things that they're doing over there. Uh, if you want to know what's going on aboard the International Space Station besides DNA sequencing, nasa.gov slash ISS is a great place to do that. Otherwise, nasa.gov slash HRP is a good place to see some of the other human research program uh, elements that we're doing. Uh, um, Dr. Sarah Wallace is part of the microbiology lab here, and there's a lot of other human research aspects to, uh, to I guess, just flying humans in space, but then also aboard the International Space Station and beyond. Uh, on social media, we're on the International Space Station accounts. You guys should know this, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Go to any one of those accounts and use the hashtag AskNASA on any one of the platforms to submit an idea for the podcast, and then we'll make sure to mention uh, it on a future episode or make a whole episode out of it. This podcast was recorded on April 17th, 2018. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Isidra Reyna, Pat Ryan, Bill Stafford, and Junie Hayes. And special thanks to Thalia Petrinos for writing the questions on today's episode. Thanks again to Dr. Sarah Wallace for coming on the show. We'll be back next week.